Our reading this morning is from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, and I'm reading today from the New Living Translation. So it's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting to read at verse 12. But tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. After that, the end will come when he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For the scripture says, God has put all things under his authority. Of course, when it says all things are under his authority, that does not include God himself, who gave Christ his authority. Then when all things are under his authority, The Son will put himself under God's authority, so that God, who gave his Son authority over all things, will be utterly supreme over everything, everywhere. If the dead will not be raised, what point is there in people being baptized for those who are dead? Why do it unless the dead will someday rise again? And why should we ourselves risk our lives hour by hour, For I swear, dear brothers and sisters, that I face death daily. This is as certain as my pride in what Christ Jesus our Lord has done in you. And what value was there in fighting wild beasts, those people of Ephesus, if there will be no resurrection from the dead? And if there is no resurrection, let's feast and drink, for tomorrow we die. Don't be fooled by those who say such things. For bad company corrupts good character. Think carefully about what is right and stop sinning. For to your shame I say that some of you 
don't know God at all. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Annabelle. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you did raise your son, Jesus Christ, from the grave to new life. Father, strengthen that faith in us. Help us to know the truth of it this morning as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. That passage is really all about lying, lying that was going on within the church in Corinth and lying, whether they're little white lies, fibs, being economical with the truth, are all absolutely rightly something we take a very dim view of in any walk of life, and especially here in church. Now, I'd be lying multiple times if I stood here, as I'm going to, and tell you that that's a picture of a brush class 37 diesel locomotive and that they're the most powerful and successful diesel locomotives ever to run on British railways. Now, there are a multitude of lies within that statement, and one or two of you will have spotted them. In fact, it's a picture of the Class 37's older big brother, built by English Electric, the Class 40, which at a mere 2,000 horsepower were far from the most powerful locomotives ever to work on British Rail, best described as overweight and underpowered. Now, I've told you here a series of brazen lies. They're of no terribly great consequence to most people, and... The thing is, you can easily fact-check them if you wanted to from lots of different sources. And if you still don't believe me, you could go and you could still find um, a Class 40 and a Class 37 and you could look at them side by side or pictures of them side by side and see the differences and know that I was telling you a lie. As to whether they were the most successful diesel locomotive ever to run on British Railways, we're starting to venture into value judgments and opinion here rather than the world of fact. And whilst impressive, they couldn't ever really, sadly, be described as the most successful. But that's a point that's harder to prove. And neither of those examples are of any great importance and certainly weren't examples that would have been of any relevance to the Apostle Paul writing to the young church in first century Corinth. Although there is a very tenuous link here. Given the length of time Paul was to spend in Rome, it's widely believed that it was the width part of the ruts made by the cartwheels in ancient Rome that set, up, set the gauge for most of our modern railways today, but complete irrelevance to that. But Paul raises a real big fundamental question in that passage that Annabelle's just read for us, and it brings us to the very heart of the Easter message and the truth about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Corinth... The church Paul was writing to there, um, you can see it there. Uh, I remember learning about the Isthmus of Corinth in my history lessons at school a very, very long time ago. It's a Greek city, it's part of Greece, uh, it was then, it still is today. It's a Greek city, it's influenced by Greek language, Greek culture. Uh, it was then, just as it is now, and just as London today is influenced by British culture, British thinking. And if we had a time machine and we could take ourselves back to first century Greece, we'd discover that if we went there, pretty much everyone at the time thought that when a person died, their soul was freed from the body and went on to immortality, leaving the body behind to decay. The idea of the body being immortal was totally alien to your average first century Greek. and was a central 
It was something that was as central to Greek thinking then as driving on the left-hand side of the road is to us here today in the British Isles. That young church in Corinth was made up of people from all sorts of different backgrounds, and amongst them there were some false teachers who were teaching that Christ wasn't raised from the grave. We'll come to why that's so wrong in a moment, but before we're too critical, let's stop and think for a moment. The idea that the body didn't rise again and that it was the soul of the person which lived on forever was so ingrained into Greek thinking that even when you've had it explained to you lots of time, it's still there in your subconscious. So there will have been quite a challenge to uh, those Corinthian Christians there to overcome those ideas that they held. So you could see why this idea gained some traction, why people were starting to believe it. But two little examples that might just be helpful in understanding that. If we think back to those pre-COVID days when we could travel abroad, how often do you find yourself standing at the curb there, looking at the traffic to cross the road, and you always have to do that look to the right there? You can't set out, even though you know the traffic is coming from that side of you. It's so ingrained, look right, look left, look right again. I find myself, you always do that, even though anything that's going to hit you is coming from that side over there. It's so ingrained in our subconscious to think like that. Then there was the wonderful story of an engineer I had working for me many years ago who admitted that whenever she heard an ice cream van jingle, all she could think of was what her parents had always told her, which was that ice cream vans only played music to tell you they'd sold out. (laughs) Which is a really, really mean trick. So children, I'm really sorry if you're here and if your mums and dads have told you that the ice cream van only plays music. No. (laughs) No, that would be silly, wouldn't it? That would be really, really silly to do that. Even after studying engineering at Cambridge, she couldn't get that subconscious thought from her mind. But back to first century Corinth. For whatever reason, these false teachers were preaching there was no resurrection. And despite centuries of Greek thought, the world was never now, though, going to be the same again. Because Jesus, when he rose from the tomb on that first Easter Sunday, blew everything that people thought they understood out the water. But 30 or so years after the first Easter Sunday, people were still clearly struggling to come to understand what that meant and why, why, why that was so important. Perhaps it wasn't a surprise, and even today people still struggle with the reality of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the tomb. Why? Because it remains outside our everyday understanding of what happens when people die. But as James reminded us last week, Paul tells the Corinthian Christians that the risen Lord Jesus had appeared to the apostles, then to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters, many of whom were still alive and therefore eyewitnesses that they could go and speak to if they wanted proof for themselves, before ultimately the risen Lord Jesus appeared to Paul himself. Paul sets out the real hard, verifiable evidence that Jesus is alive, that Jesus was raised from the grave. He sets it out to the Corinthians in verses 1 to 11, which James opened for us last week. But now we come to the heart of Paul's argument as he confronts those false teachers in the church in Corinth. And the argument is just as valid today as it was then. When I was training as a reader, um, it was up in the northeast of England in the Durham Diocese back in the uh, mid-80s, 
And David Jenkins was then newly installed as Bishop of Durham. And he was causing huge amounts of controversy with his views about the physical reality of the resurrection, believing the resurrection was not a single event, but a series of experiences that gradually convinced people Jesus' life, power, purpose, and personality were actually continuing. Just to put the record straight, he didn't say that it was a conjuring trick with bones. He said it was not a conjuring trick with bones, to be fair to him there. But he struggled with the real physical reality of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. But that is so central to the gospel message that we have to explore it in a bit more detail. Paul sums up the argument to the Corinthians with characteristic bluntness. You can't, he says, say at the same time Jesus was raised from the dead and that there's no resurrection from the dead. And by that he means a bodily resurrection. It's an oxymoron. It just doesn't make sense. If there's no such thing as the resurrection of the body, Jesus couldn't have been raised from the dead. And if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, all of us have been telling you that Jesus was raised from the dead. We've been lying to you. Even worse than that, Paul says, we've been lying about God. We've been saying that God has done something that he hasn't done. That's blasphemy. And that's got to be a pretty compelling argument that has to focus the mind of every Christian minister in particular. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, I am this morning guilty of standing here and lying to you over matters of the utmost importance, even worse than that of making false claims about God in the same way that Mike and James and Dim and every Christian minister who proclaimed Christ is risen last Sunday and, by the way, all of you responded, he is risen indeed are equally guilty if, in fact, Christ wasn't raised from the dead. But the reality is Jesus was raised from the dead. The tomb was empty. The tomb was empty when the women and the disciples reached it. They didn't find a body there. What did they find? The gospel tells us they found the, the linen clothes, cloths there. Some accounts say they were nicely folded up, but that probably doesn't make as good a picture there. The cloths that Jesus' body had been wrapped in were unwrapped. They were there. Jesus was gone. The tomb was empty. All the religious authorities, aided and abetted by Pilate, who wanted no trouble on his watch, all the religious authorities had to do to stop the disciples and the whole Jesus movement in its tracks was one thing, and that was produce Jesus' body. Surely that was easy. Pilate knew who'd taken Jesus' body on Good Friday when it was taken down, when the body was taken down from the cross. Joseph of Arimathea was a well-known, prominent citizen. They knew where to find him if they needed to ask him where the tomb was that he'd laid Jesus' body in. But they didn't need to because Matthew tells us that Pilate had a guard posted at the tomb at the request of the chief priests and the Pharisees. So everybody knew where that tomb was. They knew where the body was buried. And having stopped at nothing to have Jesus crucified and remembering his promise to rise again on the third day, they were determined to make sure that this didn't happen. But despite all their efforts, God raised Jesus from the tomb on Easter Sunday morning and he's alive. He's alive forevermore. 
in human terms. The situation there in first century Rome was a, a very unequal fight, a ragbag group of a couple of dozen disciples and other followers, many of whom had run away as Jesus was crucified or given up and started back from Jerusalem to home on Easter Sunday morning. Versus the combined might of the religious, Jewish religious establishment and the Roman Empire. But God had other ideas, and of course they could never produce Jesus' body because he was alive. He wasn't dead, he wasn't confined to the tomb. Now we know that Jesus' resurrection body was different to his earthly body. It was no longer bound by the same laws of physics that our bodies are. Rules that mean if we want to enter a locked room, we have to open the door first. Jesus was able to appear amongst the disciples when they were in a locked room. But at the same time, Jesus was able to eat the food that was offered to him. And as if that wasn't enough, Jesus' resurrection body was such that when he invited Thomas to place his fingers in the nail marks in his hands and feet and place his hand in the gash in his side where the soldier plunged his spear in, Thomas had no need to do so because he could see the reality of those wounds as Jesus stood before him. As I said when we started, nobody likes a liar and lying before God and about God takes lying to a whole new level. In this case, it would be much more than my pants that would be on fire if I was lying here. I'm not lying, nor are Mike or James or Dim or Nathan or Teresa or our bishop or the countless martyrs down the centuries when we with them proclaim that Christ is risen. But why is it so important that Jesus was raised from death to life? When Jesus died on the cross on Good Friday, he paid the price for our sin. Jesus' love for us was so wonderful that he said to God the Father, punish me, not them. That's all of us here this morning and Christians down the ages. When God the Father raised his only son, Jesus Christ, to life again on Easter Sunday, that was demonstration that the sacrifice Jesus had offered was complete and sufficient, that it was mission accomplished. If Jesus wasn't raised from the bed, from the dead, then our faith is futile. Our sins haven't been forgiven. We're more to be pitied than anybody else out there who doesn't believe in God. If Jesus died and that was it, if there was no resurrection, he achieved nothing, and would be relegated to being nothing more than a footnote in history. But that isn't the case, for as Paul puts it, Christ has been raised. The first fruits of the, the harvest who've fallen asleep, those who've died. The first fruits, the first offerings, literally that, the first fruits of the harvest that were set aside, offered to God in thanksgiving for everything that was to come. Sort of pledge. God raised Jesus to life again as the first fruits, as surety, as proof to us that Jesus' sacrifice has been accepted and a precursor of what's going to follow when all who believe in Christ are raised to life again. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is a unique event in history. Paul draws the contrast between Adam, who brought sin and death into the world, by doing the one thing he and Eve were explicitly told they weren't to do in the Garden of Eden. And then by contrast, Jesus, the man who brings life, not just life in this world, but life in all its fullness in the world to come. In Adam, because he and Eve disobeyed God, we ultimately only find death. By contrast, in Jesus we find life, and life in all its fullness. And we know that this is true. We know that it's ours, because God raised Jesus on the first Easter Sunday. If none of this is true, we're all liars, hypocrites, guilty of making claims about God which aren't true. 
But the reality is that message of Easter is true. And just as Paul stood firm against those in Corinth who denied the reality of the resurrection, so we need to do the same today, whether false teachers within the church, whether it's those who reject the truth of Jesus Christ, or those who have yet to hear the good news about Jesus. The Easter message, the cross, the empty tomb, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is gospel truth, good news truth. Gospel just means good news. So as we reflect on these wonderful truths, let's affirm once again that Christ is risen. Everybody, he is risen indeed. Alleluia. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to know the truth of the resurrection, that Jesus is alive, that Jesus reigns with you in highest heaven. Help us to share this wonderful message with those around us and to live our lives in the sure and certain knowledge of this wonderful truth. And when the time comes that you come or call, we pray that you would raise us to new life with you forevermore. Amen.